This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 14, Genesis chapters 48 to 50. After a long life in Egypt, Yaakov summons Yosef to his bedside to bless Yosef's children and confer blessings upon all of his sons. Each in turn comes before Yaakov and is blessed, and chapter 49 concludes, quote, All these are the tribes of Israel, twelve, and this is what their father spoke to them. He blessed them according to what belonged to each as blessing. He blessed them. He also solicited a pledge from his son to be buried in the cave of Machpelah along with his father Yitzchak and grandfather Avraham. When Yaakov dies, Yosef gives instructions to have his father embalmed and assembles a procession to take the body to Hebron for burial. With the mourning time completed in Canaan and the family's return to Egypt, the brothers begin to worry that like their uncle Esav, Yosef has been waiting for their father to die before unleashing his revenge. So they concoct yet another deception, this time for Yosef. They tell Yosef that Yaakov commanded them to tell Yosef that he, Yosef, must forgive them, the brothers, and move on. And so the book of Genesis concludes with the brothers reconciling, living long lives in Egypt, affirming the promise of God that they will eventually return to the land of Canaan, promised to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and that when they return, they would bring Yosef's bones as well. And so Genesis concludes with the death of Yosef, age 110, embalmed, entombed, awaiting the redemption. So there's a lot to talk about this week's portion. Let's get to it. I want to talk about two aspects of this week's portion. The first is rather pronounced. It's overt, it's line-consuming and column-inch demanding, while the other is kind of implicit. It's subtle, so subtle that if you casually glanced over just but one verse, you'd miss it completely. What I'm talking about are blessings and apologies. We witness a lot of blessings throughout the book of Genesis. Obviously, much of it is done by God at the outset, and that's a pretty valuable gift card to have tucked in your wallet. But in later episodes, particularly those involving Yaakov, the blessings offered by fathers to sons become a real hot commodity. These blessings are, by and large, focused on one thing, good fortune. In other words, the blesser is wishing, foretelling, bestowing good fortune on the blessed. So if it's early on in Genesis and you're barren, God will bless you with a child. If you're few and meager, God will bless you with numbers. If you have three sheep and a camel, God will bless you and you're, you'll have many, many more. And there's also good wishes for health, long life, honor, victory, blah, 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 blah. So even many of the father-to-son blessings are similarly pro forma in that the blessing, be it for prosperity, dominance over the other brother, victory over enemies, or just another vague wish for good times, the blessing really could have been given to anyone. The blessing that Malkitzedek confers on Avraham or Yitzchak gives to Yaakov, thinking it was Esav, would not have been any different had someone else carried the day in battle or Yaakov had really been the eldest receiving the blessing ruse-free. But if you look at Esav's consolation blessing, it departs from the standard formula. Yitzchak teases out something about his son's nature and character and alludes to it in the blessing. Behold, from the fat of the earth must be your dwelling place. From the dew of the heavens above, you will live by your sword. You will serve your brother. But it will be that when you brandish it, 
you will tear his yoke from your neck. So, besides from conferring the standard wish for prosperity, he also acknowledges his son's rough-and-tumble character. After all, Yitzchak did love Esav best, and he loved him best for a reason. Yitzchak's blessing sees Esav for who he is, but more so. He understands how Esav's relationship with Yaakov might unfold as he has wished, blessed for Yaakov to dominate Esav. And given his insight into his son's nature, he also understands how Esav will respond to how Yaakov might treat him. This blessing is personalized. It could not have been delivered to Yaakov had the roles been reversed. The same applies to the blessing conferred upon Yaakov on the banks of the Yabok by the night stranger, which renames him Yisrael, God-fighter, because he, Yaakov, actually fought with God and men and prevailed. And so when we look at Yaakov's blessings to his sons and grandsons, it is not surprising that they are personal and individual. Take Yaakov's blessing of Ephraim and Menashe. When Yaakov places his right on Ephraim's head, Yosef gently suggests a correction. Menashe is the elder. But Yaakov replies, I know, my son, I know. He too will be a people. He too will be great. Yet his younger brother will be greater than he, and his seed will become a full measure of nations. And Yaakov's blessing to those boys remains the blessing fathers confer upon their sons every Friday night. Yesimcha Elohim ke'efraim uchim Menasheh. God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. The blessings Yaakov gives his sons also relate to some aspect of their personality inasmuch as we have read about their personalities in the book of Genesis. Or, read differently, their sayings epitomizing the traits and fortunes of the Israelite tribes. In either case, they are individually crafted and very specific. And some of these blessings are not really blessings at all. Three of them, in fact, are sharp jibes. Others are somewhat satiric. Reuven's blessing is a critique, alluding to his presumptive behavior in betting his father's handmaid Zilpah. The same is true of Shimon and Levi, who ran amok in Shechem. Yehuda, on the other hand, is venerated as fierce and upright. Yehuda is also described poetically as a rapacious lion, and Yaakov's shift into animal imagery in many of these blessings inspired countless fauna-filled stained-glass panels in synagogues. So Issachar is likened to a lazy or stoic ass, Dan a cunning serpent, and Naphtali a lovely hind. Beloved Binyamin is a ravenous wolf. There are also numerous examples of wordplay in the blessings. Dan is a judge, Dan Yadin. The brother Gad shall raid, Yagud. And Issachar, Ish Sachar, a man of wages, quote, bowed his shoulders to bear and become a slave at forced labor. Reading these blessings from an historical perspective, one could see allusions here to the ascendancy of the tribe of Judah to the monarchy in the late 11th century BCE, with verse 10 directly referring to King David. But there are other more vague references to struggle against local enemies and attacks, guerrilla-style combat against hostile conquerors, or feasting on the spoils of war. There are also connections made to tribal economics and geographic features, such as Yehuda's viticulture and Zvulun's control of shipping north of Mount Carmel. Come to think of it, only verses 25 and 26 contain a proper blessing, which is blandly pro forma. But then again, so is cash, which also has its uses. Which brings me to my next topic. Apologies. Now apologize! What, uh, me? To you? Apologize. All right, all right, I apologize. You're really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. 
I apologize unreservedly. You take it back. I do. I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis in fact and was in no way fair comment and was motivated purely by malice. And I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family. And I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Okay. It's something we're taught to do as soon as we begin talking, and if you're in Canada, it's a, it's a national pastime. But why are apologies important? What purpose do they serve? How does one do an apology? For humans, apologizing has an important social function. It diffuses conflict. It avoids retaliation. It encourages reconciliation. It also reaffirms the value of rules and obligations. But how one apologizes is not altogether clear. For example, using the phrase, I am sorry, or I apologize, might not necessarily mean just that. Uh, I might say I'm sorry because that's what I'm supposed to say in the moment. I might say I'm sorry to acknowledge or express sorrow or sympathy for something that happened to you that had nothing to do with me, like the death of a relative. Or I might say I'm sorry to express regret, but not to claim responsibility. Uh, I'll return to this point later. But first, some examples. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. That I, I recognize the pain and the suffering that they've gone through because of this. I wouldn't dream of asking Chelsea and Mrs. Clinton to forgive me, but I would ask them to know that I am very sorry for what happened and for what they've been through. Putting up with something uh, stupid I've gotten myself involved in. Uh, now the other thing is uh, my wife Regina, uh, she has been horribly uh, hurt uh, by my behavior, but either you're going to make some progress and get it fixed, or you're going to fall short and perhaps not get it fixed. So all of the uh, the, the heartache and, and the attention and the embarrassment. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Good morning. Many of you have cheered for me. Now, every one of you has good reason to be critical of me. I want to say to each of you, simply and directly, I'm deeply sorry my irresponsible and selfish behavior I engaged in. I have let you down. My behavior has been a personal disappointment. I am so sorry. 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 In each case, there is a kabuki aspect to apologies, a highly ritualized process where there is a need for, well, you know, rather than talk about it, let's actually take apart a really good example of an apology, although some have said this a bit rough around the edges, but you'll see what I mean. So, but first, a little backstory. Kickstarter is a company that was founded in 2009. They create a space and the tools for individuals to get their creative projects crowdfunded. That is... They can get their projects paid for by strangers who pool their money to support the effort. 
people can't invest in a Kickstarter to make money. They can only back a project in exchange for a thank you, like a t-shirt or dinner with the author or some other token of appreciation. Kickstarter to date has helped fund documentary films, dramas, comedies, video projects of various flavors, albums, stage shows, comic books, video games, various doodads and gigaws. And in early June of 2013, it also gave a platform for the crowdfunding of a, quote, seduction guide, a book to help men pick up women. That particular Kickstarter was fully funded, and the company was only made aware of the, odi the odious nature of the book two hours before the automated process came to fruition, and they could not stop it before the manual writers eventually got their cash. So, faced with this problem, Kickstarter apologized. You can read the whole apology at their website. I have the link at the nextjew.com or on the Facebook page. But here's what they did. First, whatever they did, they did it in writing. Then they identified the problem. And then they followed up that statement with another simple statement, we were wrong. Then they followed up with exactly how they were wrong. And they explained how they were wrong without sounding whiny or making excuses. And then, as important as the acknowledgement of error, they then explained what they will do to fix the problem and then to prevent future problems from arising. They also morally engaged with the problem by literally putting their money where their mouths is. And they offered a small yet insignificant reparation to the wrong group. But with the wide world of the interwebs that's always watching, always listening, and always recording everything in black sharpie, the opportunities for people to screw up have expanded exponentially as have the opportunities to craft apologies. And as I'd mentioned earlier, with the explosion of apologies also come those that are not really apologies, such as those that offer a vague or incomplete acknowledgement of the wrong, or apologize for something else, something kind of related to the actual wrong. For example, Enron's CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, was asked to account for the corporate malfeasance that destroyed the lives of the company's employees, and the thousands and thousands of people who invested their retirement funds in Enron. This is what he said. Quote, I am devastated by and apologetic about what Enron has come to represent. Hmm. Then, of course, there are those apologies that include the phrase, I deeply regret, where you get to express regret for what you did, but you don't take any of the blame or any of the responsibility. Or the use of the passive voice, like as in, Mistakes were made, as if the mistake made itself. Listen carefully to this whopper by then Chief of Staff to President George Bush John Sununu. He was caught violating various White House travel rules, and this is what he said in response. Clearly, no one regrets more than I do the appearance of impropriety produced as a result of the events surrounding my recent travel. Obviously, some mistakes were made. Certainly I regret that my own mistakes contributed to this controversy. That was a good one, huh? Or there's the, I'm sorry if you were offended, as if what I did was only wrong in your opinion, and in fact, you're wrong for taking offense. Or then there's the, I'm sorry, but, which is really not an apology at all, but just an opener for further wrongdoing. This is similar to leading with, with all due respect, we all know that what follows is surely going to be disrespectful. Uh, or here, here's an example of the all-time, I think the all-time greatest non-apology apology. It was delivered by Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans to the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Uh, there was this Australian TV series, Embassy, and it had a very negative portrayal of Malaysia in it. 
Evans said that, quote, he wanted to acknowledge fault where such acknowledgement is appropriate. I've attached links to a New York Times piece about this legendary non-apology apology, as well as a Time Magazine piece with the top 10 apologies at thenextjew.com, as well as at the Facebook page. Which brings me to that other realm of apologies, the diplomatic realm, or what happens when one country wrongs another. How a country decides whether or not to apologize or provide some financial compensation is, many scholars have argued, dependent on two things. Whether the state in question perceives that apology and reparations as fitting in with their security interests, and whether there'll be a cost domestically for apologizing. So, for example, when West German Chancellor Willy Brandt dropped to his knees the monument for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising during a December 1970 visit to Poland, it was part of a larger process of apology and reparation that had been in effect since the end of World War II, particularly vis-a-vis the Jewish people and the state of Israel. This public gesture of Brandt, which is known as the Kniefall von Warschau, did not go over very well with West Germans. According to a Der Spiegel survey at the time, 48% thought the Kniefall was excessive, 41% said it was appropriate, and 11% had no opinion. However, this show of humility was successful in initiating a process of reconciliation between Germany and Eastern Europe, Brandt's Ostopolitik. Some have argued that this gesture even contributed to Brandt receiving the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1971. So, one wonders, was there some Bruderpolitik in play here when the brothers fabricated Jakob's command that Yosef forgive them? Yosef, if you recall, during the big reveal, or the Captain Obvious reveal, simply gushed about how the brothers should not dwell on the past and that it was all part of God's plan for him to rise in prominence in Egypt so that he could save them all and how they all have to move to Egypt now to Goshen to be near where Yosef can sustain them for the remaining five years of the preordained famine. But there was that cryptic verse, I don't know if you remember, chapter 45, verse 15, where Yosef kisses all his brothers and then, quote, after this, his brothers spoke with him. Did they apologize? I would argue no, and here's why. The most basic element of the apology, if you recall the Kickstarter example, is the simple statement, we were wrong. We don't have any indication that the brothers said to Yosef, what we did to you that day was wrong. There's a lot of crosstalk about God and making clear to us, the reader, why they were being mistreated in Egypt, but never did the brothers just come out and say, we're wrong and we're sorry. And if you further recall the social function of the apology, that it diffuses conflict, avoids retaliation, and encourages reconciliation, the behavior of the brothers, that is, they're making up Yaakov's dying wish for forgiveness, also indicates that there was still the need for something to happen to make sure that that conflict was truly diffused, that there would be no retaliation, and that reconciliation would be sincere and genuine. In short... The brothers, like Larry David in practically every episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, continue to act like the assholes they are. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quiment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. 
As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 15, where two exciting things will happen. We'll begin the book of Exodus and begin it with our first guest, president of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future, Dan Liebenson. Y'all come back now. Here.